Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And for the last few weeks, we've been reading through the fourth step on obedience. And we're about uh, maybe three quarters of the way through. Tonight, we're picking up on page 86, if you're following along in the text, with number 63. And in, in these pages, he begins to speak about obedience, in particular in regards to the relationship between the spiritual father and the novice or whoever is being guided, the importance of that relationship uh, and the healing that it can, can bring and how the evil one will even seek to undermine that relationship in one form or another. And also how it is that one should go about picking a spiritual father or choosing a spiritual father. So there's a lot here in these final pages that I think people will find very rich and that we'll touch upon our own day-to-day -day spiritual life. So again, we're on number 63. A couple of last people come in. At confession, be like a condemned criminal in disposition and outward appearance and in thought. Cast your eyes to the earth and if possible, sprinkle the feet of your judge and physician as the feet of Christ with your tears. So very, you know, certainly powerful and again, very stark image for us in terms of the state of mind and heart uh, that we are to bring to confession, that we would foster compunction and deep contrition within us. And I think when we read through the fathers, we get this sense of preparing the mind and the heart, not just in the moments before confession, but in the way that we live our day-to-day -day life. If we're living in a constant state of repentance, of being turned toward God, but also having a deepening awareness uh, of the ways that perhaps we do not take hold of the grace that he offers us at every moment, our, our vision, our awareness of our sin uh, begins to grow. And tears in the writings of the fathers is seen as a particular gift tied to repentance uh, and humility as well. That the, the, the more clearly one sees one's own sin, uh, that tears will often flow. And St. John Climacus describes it as undergoing another baptism that, uh, that on a day-to-day -day basis, when this gift is given, that there's something cleansing about this, that the whole self is involved in our turning toward God and including the, the, on the effective level, so much so that our contrition gives rise to physical tears. Now, John, uh, much later on, will warn us not to be overly anxious about this, nor to force tears, that one can experience this contrition and deep compunction without uh, necessarily having them. But so often we see within the fathers and those who have fostered repentance and the spirit of compunction on a deep level that God often will give this gift to them. And it's hard, I think, maybe to uh, wrap our minds around the idea of that being a gift. Uh, but I think we've probably all had the experience at times of a kind of cleansing that often does come with tears, even on an emotional level, that there is a kind of a cathartic relief there. But with spiritual tears, I think something on a much deeper level is taking place uh, when 
it's made manifest through faith and in the context of our relationship with God. Not only is there something there that is deeply cleansing, but uh, draws us into a deeper intimacy with God. We are weeping not only over our sin, but the effect that it has upon that relationship and the, the breakdown of intimacy there. And it's tied very much to the renewal of that intimacy. Uh, the fathers describe it as joyful sorrow or sorrowful joy that one leads to the other, that contrition for all, us should always give way to this experience of renewed intimacy with God, that if we linger in the experience of shame or in a spirit of sadness, that uh, there's always a danger of falling into despondency. So whenever we receive the grace of forgiveness, one of the fruits of that should be a renewed joy and renewed vigor in terms of our stepping back into the spiritual battle. Okay. So even though he describes it in these stark terms, you know, coming before our physician, you know, our spiritual father, and taking the posture of a condemned criminal, uh, it's not simply you know, this uh, pious uh, action that one conjures up or you know, kind of acting, it could very easily become that. It has to arise, I think, rather out of this deep spirit of compunction. And sometimes I think our bodily actions can give rise to that. I'm sorry, folks. I got a call from Las Vegas, and I'm not sure why that would be the case. <laughs> okay. So any thoughts or comments on this first saying? Okay. Number 64. If everything depends on habit and follows upon it, then still more do the virtues depend upon habit, for they have God as their great fellow laborer. So in the spiritual life, and Angela, we'll get right to your question here. In the spiritual life, uh, the habit is an essential thing. And I think we see this as a given in every other area of our life that uh, asceticism in and of itself is creating a, a positive habit, a discipline of life, an exercise of our faith life. And so it's creating the habit of virtue. And uh, so often I think in, in the spiritual life, we have this tendency to think that prayer and other spiritual exercises should be something that arises spontaneously or that we're inspired to do them. When in reality, very often we have to force ourselves uh, and develop a habit of engaging in prayer that isn't rooted only in our feelings. So it'll be many times when we're sick or fatigued uh, or feel overwhelmed by life or life seems chaotic when we very easily could let off of our prayer life. If we hadn't established that habit uh, of, of virtue, the habit of prayer, and, uh, and so I think we've often talked about creating a prayer role. And we, we know that the monastics did this. They had a role as a community, a role of prayer. And I think there's no, uh, no reason why we who are living in the world, and maybe there's even greater reason for us to have a prayer role, a habit of prayer that we establish for ourselves precisely because we are busy. 
and have other obligations for family and our work, that it becomes almost more important to have it deeply, this habit deeply established within us. Angela. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, th this, um, this uh, calls to my mind how when we are loved by God despite the fact that um, we are behaving badly and, and if, we, if we are deeply contrite, then we receive more graces, more love. And um, it seems to me that that is the sort of love that we have to bring into our relationships, right. that, that same love. Um, and it seemed, that to me seems almost impossible. Um, you know, the deep love that God continues to avail to us is that same love that we have to give to all those people who irritate us and annoy us so much. And um, I've been trying hard to bring that sort of love into play in my life. And I just fail so miserably. Yeah. Um, um, but mm -hmm. yeah. I think often to ask forgiveness or to offer it, it can be the most difficult thing to do, to verbalize it. You know, we often will wait for things to pass you know, whenever, you know, a disagreement or a conflict has arisen that perhaps where there has led to a breakdown of charity on some level and where uh, anger gets the best of us. And often it's very difficult for us in that moment to make that little act of humility, to be able to say, I'm sorry, you know, I, for what I said or how I said it and to make the you know, restoration of the bond of charity there a priority for ourselves. In fact, in the scripture we hear, you never let yourself to go, go you know, to end the day with any kind of anger held towards another. And, uh, you know, so, and certainly in terms of our receiving Holy Communion, too, we have Christ himself saying, you know, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so it is this kind of, of habit of, that we're to foster not only in our relationship with God, but I think you're right, with, with each other, that uh, it should be reflected in these relationships as well, because there is the, not that distinction between the, the other and God if we are one in him. And if we are abiding in him, we should see Christ in the other. And the urgency that we feel within our heart to go to confession when we fall and then sin should be the same urgency we feel within our hearts to seek to be reconciled with others. Um, and there's an interesting practice, and I think we've mentioned it here before in the Eastern Rite of a Forgiveness Sunday at the beginning of Lent, you know, as they enter into the holy season that uh, to ask concretely forgiveness of actually the people right next to you within, within the church. Uh, and uh, it seems to me to be a beautiful practice, again, making something very concrete uh, and to try to root that within our hearts so that it does become something that we would certainly practice and deepen throughout the holy season of Lent, but it would carry beyond that. Uh, in our, our relationships, that Lent should really be some more of a springboard for us 
to allow us to enter more deeply into the faith life. And so we're not only seeking forgiveness from God, but also from, from each other. Very good. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's number 65. You will not labor many years, son, in search of blessed inner peace. If in the beginning you surrender yourself with your whole soul to indignities. Again, you know, when you read these things, it sort of turns our experience on, on its head that the idea of surrendering ourselves to indignities as being a path to, to virtue and to inner peace is kind of the surprising thing. Because when we are treated uh, in such a way and when indignities are heaped upon us, we move into that defensive position where we you know, begin to try to excuse ourselves or uh, even to ask permission, he'll go on to tell us, to get the other person just to stop, but not because we are really sorry for what has taken place or, or that we're seeking to be humble before them or humble before God and receiving them. And, uh, but it, it's interesting here that he, he ties it so much to maintaining internal peace when from the beginning of the spiritual life, we foster this ability to receive these things that come to us in day-to-day -day life, the insults, the, the mockery, the indignities that are heaped upon us. And we make our way through them, even if making our way through them is very difficult. It might mean simply keeping silent and not giving back as we have received and uh, allowing God's grace to work on us to soften our hearts and to bring healing there. Uh, if we begin to do that at a very early age, then as we, as we do get older, then there, we find that there's nothing that can steal our inner peace from us. Whenever we have encounters with others who perhaps approach us with aggression, we don't immediately move to that defensive position. We're able to maintain the, the peace of Christ uh, but also be able to listen to what the other person is saying, even in their anger to towards us, and not simply be re respond to the anger, but what is behind it. And uh, to reach that state and to be given that grace is an extraordinary thing, but it does not come easily. I think, you know, this is why he prefaces it with, in the previous statement, with habit that only when over the course of a lifetime, we, we really begin to train the mind and the heart to respond to these things as Christ would and as Christ did. And do we then begin to see the fruit of it in the course of our lifetime that we're able to make ourselves our way through the difficult situations in our life and difficult relationships without it having it consume us or throw us out of ourselves. Marco writes, though I am a Latin, looking at Forgiveness Sunday just before Lent, the tithe of the year brings to mind Matthew 5. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Right. And we had mentioned this a little while ago, and it's the perfect example within the scriptures. And it ties it directly to our experience our reception of the Holy Eucharist, our worship 
And I think those who would have heard this in Jesus' day would have been struck by it. I think that worship would have been put in this position because the relationship with God was so elevated. But Jesus is telling the crowds now that there is something that is, is changing in what is being revealed to us in terms of our understanding of our own dignity, our, our identity, our relationship with God, but also then our relationship with each other. We're bound now in this radical solidarity and through Christ that we can no longer relate to the other in the same way. And the only uh, attitude, the only position that we are to have is that of love and of mercy and that it is to be unconditional. And uh, again, you know, we have to fight, I think, with our natural tendencies to, to move to that uh, defensive position, fight or flight. That's what we do. You know, we run away from it, uh, try to get it to stop as quickly as we can, or we fight back and give, give it back, you know, and with double barrels to the, the person who's inflicted it upon us. So, you know, thinking again about it creating peace, that the fruit of that creating peace is something that I think we, one would have to spend great prayer uh, and opening our minds and our hearts to that and to keep our focus upon Christ himself, you know, to, that he would reveal that to our hearts in a, in a deeper way that we might embrace it. Eric Iwanko writes, it's easier to be humble when we are wrong, especially with those who are humble. It's much harder to be humble when we are right, dealing with those who are prideful and arrogant. That's true. You know, I think when we feel that we have truth on our side, uh, it can be very difficult. But I think, you know, so I, I agree with you, but I think John is even going to challenge us here uh, with that notion that even when we're in the wrong, even we, we can begin to, you know, humble ourselves before the other and apologize, but just to get the assault to stop. You know, that's the motivation for us. Whereas I think John and as well and the gospel as well is calling us to something far different, uh, not just to get the person to stop, but to be able to engage them from that place of love and the peace of Christ. And uh, again, this is something that requires heroic virtue. You know, I think if we approach it simply from an intellectual place, then it has to seem to be absurdity to us. I think it's only through faith that one can comprehend the beauty of it. The same faith that allows us to see beauty in Christ in the cross and all that he endured on our behalf, or allows us to see beauty in something like the Eucharist, that he allows himself to be broken, poured out and given to us as our food and drink, or allows himself to become absolutely vulnerable in becoming Eucharist for us. It's only faith that sees the, the beauty of that because, you know, even with the Eucharist, I think we can begin to approach it in sort of a re repetitious manner, you know, where, you know, a perfunctory way, you know, we, we come up to receive the Holy Eucharist and lose sight of the wonder of it in terms of what God becomes for us but what it also means for us to say amen and receive that love. We're saying amen to being conformed 
to that love in our day-to-day life and to act as Christ acts. All right. Okay. Number 66. Do not think that it is improper to make your confession to your helper as to God in a prostrate position. I have seen condemned criminals by their sorry appearance and violent confession and entreaty soften the severity of the judge and change his anger into mercy. This is why even John the Baptist required confession before baptism of those who came to him, not because he himself needed to know their sins, but so as to affect their salvation. So it is in the concrete acknowledgement of the sin and articulating it and in a sense owning it, if you will, that healing comes. It's the humbling of ourselves to God and the repentance of the act of turning toward God. This is what opens up the the path to grace for us. Uh, Again, this morning I was reading from the Philoclea from St. Mark the Ascetic, and he begins to talk about, you know, that what God cannot overcome is the unrepentant heart. You know, that it is this that allows us to turn to him and to receive that, that mercy. And uh, in, in a sense, this is the only thing that we should be anxious about, is our inability to see our sin and to be able to, to turn toward him. That this is the great grace for us. And we're told that you know, heaven itself rejoices when one sinner repents. And so it doesn't have anything to do with perfection, you know, or our virtue or anything along those lines, you know, that all of those things God's grace can overcome within us. It's the unrepentant heart, the heart that is closed off to him, that has become hardened, a conscience that has become darkened, that prevents our entering into that relationship. And I think you'll all agree in our reading of the Evercatinos on Mondays, this has been the the most uh, beautiful and continuous line through the readings of the importance of repentance and the desire of God to give us the abundance of his mercy that God looks simply for that simple movement in the mind and the heart, uh, waiting to flood us with that which will heal us, that he doesn't stand before us to condemn or to judge, but rather to heal and to draw us to himself. Any comments on this paragraph or any of the ones that we've looked at? Okay. Number 67, let us not be surprised if even after confession, we are still attacked for it is better to war with pollutions than with conceit. So this is, I think, a sort of consoling saying that even after making a good confession, we shouldn't be surprised if we are attacked and sometimes attacked in a more violent fashion that, uh, and so many of the saints uh, tell us to expect this, 
that the evil one will seek to draw us back to our past sin or to draw us back into it by flooding us with uh, temptations that he knows that we're vulnerable to uh, in order to draw us back into despondency and out of that joy of being reconciled with God. And so often the saints will tell us to be more guarded after we receive the grace of the sacrament. And in fact, to take on additional spiritual practices, not only leading up to our confession, but after having received the grace of the sacrament, that for a period of time, we would increase our spiritual discipline in order that that grace might bear the greatest fruit within us. And again, I think when we become so... Uh, used to receiving Holy Communion so frequently uh, that sometimes we can lose sight again of the wonder of it, but also the preciousness of the gift. And, uh, and then we lose all uh, in the face of it and a kind of trembling that should come over us if we are aware of just what it is God is giving us and what we become through receiving the gift. And, uh, and also, if we're not aware of that, I think we're going to be more vulnerable to the attacks that John speaks of here that inevitably come, but then be overwhelmed by them as well. If we, I think if we see the wonder of the gift, the preciousness of it, then how we enter into our prayer, uh, you know, it's always a beautiful thing when, uh, nobody comes out to greet you following mass or the divine liturgy because they stay and they're making their act of thanksgiving for what they've just received, that they pause, you know, that there's not this quick movement to the door to shake your hand. As much as I like that and be able to greet people, there's something touching about the fact that people are pausing after having received to linger in, in that love and to linger in gratitude for the gift that they've received. Uh, but also, I think, to prepare themselves, and this is what I think John adds here, to prepare themselves for the warfare that, that lies ahead. Okay. Couple of questions here. First, Bridget, and then Henry. Bridget, what might those additional spiritual sacrifices look like after confession? So, you know, we would typically have, you know, our prayer role, our disciplines of the day, but uh, someone like Philip Neary, who I've often brought up here in the groups, would, you know, counsel people to take upon themselves additional rosaries or novenas uh, to spend additional time before the Blessed Sacrament or days of fasting. Uh, again, you know, anything that would be part of the ascetical life to deepen uh, those practices for the, the, a period of time after we've received either the grace of, from, the confe from confession or from receiving Holy Communion. Again, the idea is not so much penitential as it is to uh, open our minds and our hearts even more fully to God, that we take upon ourselves greater discipline not just for the sake of endurance, spiritual endurance, but rather to open the heart to God more fully so that great grace might bring even greater healing to us. And so things like spiritual reading to anything, I think that might cultivate a greater desire within us 
both for God and for the life of virtue. Uh, Rachel followed up and then I'll get to you, Henry here. Uh, pride versus thoughts of various kinds that show the wounds of our disloyalty. Ride may, may be difficult and subtle. Uh, yes, so the, the, the conceit that he speaks of here can be very subtle. You know, I think we can step out of having received Holy Communion and, uh, you know, again, think ourselves impervious for a period of time, you know, that we receive something special, but then we can settle back and even lighten our discipline, say on the Sabbath day, even in terms of keeping it holy and spending additional time in prayer, we might allow ourselves to become dissipated you know, because we're out of our typical workday schedule and Sunday can become that lazy day where people, you know, lounge on the couch and I don't want to take away people's relaxation. But I think the idea is that we are, our true relaxation and restoration comes through entering into that relationship with God even more deeply. So to spend additional time on the Sabbath day being attentive to God, reading the scriptures, spiritual reading, saying additional prayers. Henry. Uh, yes, you mentioned how the reception of communion could become routine and not recognizing what we have there. Well, if any of you received communion in a Byzantine Catholic church, there is a long prayer before communion. And part of it goes, may the partaking of your, mystic, of your holy mysteries, O Lord, not for my judgment or condemnation, but for the healing of soul and body. And then we ask God to be merciful to us, a sinner. And then when the priest gives us communion by dipping the spoon into the, uh, into the consecrated bread and wine and dropping it in your mouth, he says, the servant of the God, Henry, receives the most precious body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and for life everlasting. Right. And you go away from that, not having a dry wafer in your mouth, but having a, a liquid piece of consecrated bread that you really know you're receiving Jesus. And, and often this is followed by drinking of holy water or participation of unconsecrated bread to wash that down. And, and so the real mystery stays with you. And then there are additional prayers after that it's not you don't go right into a final blessing that's right there are additional prayers that make you really reflect on what you receive so if you've never been to a byzantine catholic divine liturgy go and receive communion and you'll see it's wonderful you'll you'll remember that yeah, forever yeah beautifully put and to be honest with you those are two things that i've recently become by ritual the last three or four months and uh, those are two things that have struck me the most. The prayer uh, that you mentioned that is said before receiving Holy Communion, everybody in the church says it together. And it's rather lengthy, and, uh, but beautiful. And I've posted it before. It might be nice for us to post it in the chat here as well, if we can add it to it uh, this evening. So it goes along with the podcast. Uh, but also, as you said, the, the words that are said to the one receiving communion, mentioned by name as well. And uh, that's what I'm going to have to work on, learning the names of the people in my, my churches, in my church. But uh, you're mentioned by name as you're given communion. 
as well. It's, it's a very powerful experience. So yes, if you ha have a chance, come to my church, St. Peter and Paul in Duquesne. Okay, thank you, Henry, that's excellent. Carol. Theophan said something similar about the time immediately after communion to seek solitude and privacy in one's room to deepen the intimacy of prayer. Right, you know, again, you know, I think in our, our day, there was, my, my, my mom mentioned that there was a Polish priest, I think at one of my sister's parish parishes and, you know, saying to the people, it's not fast food that you're receiving. You know, the idea of running you know, for the door after communion uh, should be something that's foreign to us. And not only in terms of the Thanksgiving that we, we make there within the church, but as Henry was saying, that there are these additional practices, rituals that we would embrace. And as Carol mentions here, in particular, solitude and privacy, that that intimacy uh, would be prolonged, that we would linger long with the Lord. And this is where I think our experience of our reception of the Holy Eucharist and our day-to-day -day, uh, prayer are tied together. That when we linger long with God in our prayer throughout the course of the week, then when we are preparing to receive Holy Communion, but and also after receiving, we have that desire already built up within our heart to remain with him, to abide with him and in him. And, uh, and often we, we don't give ourselves the opportunity to taste something of the sweetness and the warmth of that, of lingering long. Uh, and because we often will struggle with, I, I think, uh, these deep distractions that life brings upon us. And it can take a long time for the mind and the heart to be silenced. And I've mentioned this in past groups and I'll bring it up again in, in terms of having prolonged periods where we, or times where we will extend our prayer longer than usual. Uh, like uh, not necessarily going on a retreat, but on a weekend, if we have three hours to be able to go to the church or to our room and to, to pray not for one hour, but maybe to extend it to two to three, to allow the stillness really to permeate our hearts. Often it takes that first hour just to still the mind uh, until we get to that point where we can listen on a much deeper level. And what better day to, than to do this than on the Sabbath day, especially after receiving Holy Communion. Uh, not that, that sh it shouldn't be a time when we spend uh, you know, time and share a meal with our family. But I think also that we cultivate this kind of stillness and deep intimacy with the Lord. Marco. Father, a bit of a digression, but do you have any idea of when penances to combat the passions stopping the norm in the West? My own experience in the confessional has always been pray X, Y, Z and never any concrete actions to combat the vices I struggle with. And yet recently, read recently a saintly 16th century Dominican archbishop advising his priest to give penances according to the sins confessed, fasting for sins of gluttony, lust, almsgiving for avarice, prayer for sloth, uh, acedia. Right, 
You're absolutely right. And I think it's both East and West, to be honest with you. And I think it has more to do with our disconnect with the spirit, richness of the spiritual tradition. And part of exactly what we're reading here now, that the fathers did have an unparalleled, I think, understanding of the workings of the mind and the heart, as well as how the passions manifest themselves and the various remedies that they became aware of through engaging in that spiritual battle, through engaging in the ascetical life. And, uh, you know, I've often reflected upon my seminary experience, and this was never a part of that formation. It's not that we didn't talk about the spiritual life or the life of prayer, but not this deep level of immersion uh, in the fathers, but also our immersion in the spiritual life and spiritual practices that would form and shape the mind and the heart. That there wasn't much uh, spoken about in terms of the ascetical life uh, as really being, I think, the starting point for us all. The active life is really the interior life, the struggle with the passions and seeking to grow in virtue and to take up books and study outside of that. And, and prior to years of preparing the mind and the heart can be fruitless. And uh, priests have not been exempt from that as anyone else in, in the sense of not being exposed to the richness of this tradition. I think there was a period within Catholicism where you know, they, were, they were taught through these manuals uh, that were could then be that would give very specific penances uh, for certain sins, but I think what often did not accompany that was the reasoning behind it and how the two were tied together. Uh, and sometimes it could be because of the number of people going to confession and the time limits that priests felt, you know, in terms of being restrained in regards to the counsel that they could give. We went from people, as you mentioned back in the, I think it was the 16th or 15th century, where you had certain priests spending like 12 hours within the confessional. Well, you, they were not only hearing the confession of their penitents, but were giving specific counsel to them. And along with that penance that was directed, as you said, towards what they were struggling with. And so, I think where there has to be a kind of renewal is not only in our, the way that we celebrate the liturgy. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, going back to the ex extraordinary form, uh, like the Novus Ordo, but, you know, having a kind of reverence, acting in accord with the mind of the church, but also a renewal of our practice of confession and how priests enter into that sacrament as well, that it should be a spirit-filled activity that is prepared for spiritually in order that they might be able to be, to offer the care of souls that is truly needed. And again, a lot of these things are not learned through books. And, you know, one might even be so bold to say that very little is learned from books. Like even what we are reading, it's one thing to read it and know it, it's another thing to internalize it and to have it become something that shapes your day-to-day -day life. 
how you pray so that you have an experiential knowledge of what it is to struggle with these passions so that when you have somebody come into the confessional or if you're a layman or laywoman and somebody seeks counsel from you that you're speaking from this deeper part of your experience of that spiritual battle and can offer genuine counsel and uh and so you know i've often thought again you know this renewing of seminary training and formation yeah uh often you know before trent most priests were you know formed almost in this tutorial style or as an apprentice with a priest who would be forming them and educating them and that had a personal element and certainly if you had a holy priest and a wise priest that could be something that would bear great fruit uh but i think when we move to a more academic kind of setting then uh the spiritual life can begin to be treated in a much different way and uh not that i'm suggesting that it shouldn't involve academics but it has to involve more importantly the ascetical life so good question good digression okay yeah saint john vianney henry says was one of those we have many priests and i think you know priests see the fruit of it and we've talked about this in the past that with every renewal within the church there was a renewal of the ascetical life but also a renewal of of the the practice of confession that were were is it better to begin than the healing sacrament itself and so you know a, a priest does not have to be the greatest of intellects john vianney the one that henry mentions here was not known for his academic abilities or his abilities to articulate the faith although i think he does in the the writings that we do have but he wasn't known for being the greatest of spiritual writers or theological minds uh but you know his holiness of life made him an extraordinary confession confessor and at the end of his life tens of thousands of people were coming throughout the course of a year to go to confession to him so when we move on in the the text we are picking up with number 68 Do not be overeager and do not be carried away when you hear tales of the Hesychasts and the Anchorites for you are marching in the army of the first martyr that is the Christ and if you fall do not leave the practice ground for then especially more than ever we need a physician he who strikes his foot against a stone when he has help would certainly not only have stumbled unaided but would have died. So we don't want to be overeager in the sense that we would think that we would have the level of holiness or the experiences of the hesychasts or the anchorites who have spent the majority of their life engaged in this spiritual battle that our movement along this path is uh, often a very slow and arduous one. and this makes it even more important for us to stay close to a physician a healer of of soul so that when we fall 
it's not a fall unto death, spiritual death, that we have someone who is able to pick us up to apply the healing balm of the spiritual tradition and restore our joy of heart so that we can enter into that battle once again. Any thoughts about that paragraph? Very important. You know, I think uh, sometimes we have access to so many things now, so many of the great saints' writings we can read, that we have to be very careful in how we read and how we listen to them. And, you know, certainly there have been many right from the beginning uh, of Christianity that have made that mistake, including the monks that we're reading about. There were quite a few monks that leapt to their death off of a cliff thinking that the angels would come and take hold of them and or starve themselves to death because they you know, or, you know, at least physically wounded themselves or shortened their lives because they fasted in the extreme rather than in a measured way that would be appropriate to where they were in the spiritual life. Number 69, when we are brought down, then the demons quickly attack us and seizing on a reasonable or rather unreasonable pretext, they suggest stillness to us. The aim of our enemies is to add wounds to our fall. So sometimes the, the fall into a particular sin uh, brings upon us a kind of shame and our thought then is to isolate ourselves, to enter into stillness or silence. Uh, and thinking that we are deepening our prayer life. And so what better path could there be for us than that? And, but it, in reality, is a, a wound, it wounds us uh, because it keeps us in that state of shame or that state of woundedness of our sin, rather than going to our, our spiritual father or going to confession to receive the grace and the counsel that we need, we will, we will uh, regress or pull back into our, ourselves. And when that happens, we can experience one fall after another. You know, often the thought goes, well, if I've already done this, you know, and I'm going to have to go to confession, then I might as well do it again. This is the kind of thought that the demons will put into our mind. And so, you know, to simply, you know, you know, slink back into our, you know, shameful state, state, want to hide things or somehow find a way to pull ourselves out of it. You know, if even though, if even it's blackening out of, it out of our mind, not even going to confession, but sometimes we will delay and linger in it until that experience of compunction ceases and we become distracted by the other realities of life. And so this is why John is saying the demons want to add wound to wound. So they have us wounded and want to, us to stay in that position where they can cont continue to inflict their temptations upon us to draw us ever deeper into that sin. This is an incredibly important saying, and you know, certainly a good one to underline, but to, to me meditate upon and memorize, because it's often a, a great temptation for us.
we can we often will find a multitude of reasons uh, not to go to confession or not at least to speak to, to somebody, a confidant or a spiritual father about what we're struggling with. So you get what he's saying here. You know, silence and stillness is a good thing, but there's also, it's also not a good thing when we have fallen. Okay. Number 70. When a physician protests his incompetence, then you have to go to another because few are healed without a physician. And who would think of contradicting us when we say that every ship that encounters shipwreck with a skilled pilot would be utterly lost without a pilot. So, you know, if we have someone, a confessor or a priest who says, I, I just don't do that, you know, and I've, I've, you know, I've heard that priests have said that in some ways, I think it's an honest thing to say, uh, either because they, they don't have the ability to do it frequently or don't believe they have the skill to offer spiritual counsel or spiritual direction, they will tell people, I, 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 I cannot take you as a spiritual directee, but I can refer you to another. Uh, in some sense, that's more respectful than practicing on someone without any counsel and uh, any guidance. You know, in, in some ways we, we struggle within the spiritual life. And part of it is, you know, the, the priest is bound by confidentiality. And certainly when it's confessional, you know, it's under the seal. Uh, and this differs, I think, from certain other fields like psychology or, you know, psychoanalysis, uh, where analysts will have a supervising analyst that they will be able, and they have to get permission to do this written permission from the analysand who's on the couch to be able to do this, but they can go and then talk about what they are experiencing and hearing in order to get another person's perspective on it and counsel. Because they will often experience a kind of counter-transference or if things are very deep and complex, it can be very difficult to see what's going on there with the person. But a priest uh, often is left in this experience of isolation. And if he's not going to spiritual direction frequently himself, and not immersed in the fathers and having them as his guides and constantly doing engaged in spiritual reading, hearing and listening to other people's spiritual struggles and offering a kind of counsel that is going to be fruitful can be very difficult. And sometimes as we've heard in the Evercatinos, it can be something that's very damaging to reveal the thoughts to someone who is not going to respect them, protect them, or be able to offer good counsel. It can lead to a kind of shipwreck. And uh, the image here is a powerful one. You know, uh, a ship that is piloted by someone who has years of experiences, years of experience is going to be able to guide the ship to safety, you know, through the storms and more, more likely than if it had no pilot at all. And the same is true within the spiritual life. You know, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, 
you know, had often commented the great harm that she received from multiple spiritual directors and confessors over the course of her spiritual life until she found one who was able to understand and grasp what she was experiencing. And so sort of the rule of thumb is that one would spend a great deal of time in prayer uh, discerning, and we'll, we'll see this throughout the rest of this step, whether a spiritual father is the one that you should be seeing and that you aren't picking someone who's simply going to tell you what to hear, what you want to hear either. In fact, John says you should pick somebody just the opposite. So if you're lazy, you want to have a spiritual director who's going to call you on it and is going to be very strict with you about it. So uh, again, you know, this uh, a very important saying to take to heart. Any thoughts or comments? Okay. 71. From obedience comes humility, and from humility comes dispassion. For in our humility, the Lord remembered and redeemed us from our enemies. Therefore, nothing prevents us from saying that from obedience comes dispassion, through which the goal of humility is attained. For humility is the beginning of dispassion, as Moses is the beginning of the law, and the daughter perfects the mother as Mary perfects the synagogue. So very confusing saying, but this is what I believe he's trying to communicate. That in our obedience to a spiritual father or in a monastery to the abbot, uh, to whoever has responsibility over us, that humility begins to be formed. That you are setting aside judgment, opinion, and uh, you're setting aside your own willfulness and will in so many different circumstances. And so out of that obedience, a kind of spirit of humility begins to emerge. One isn't elevating one's opinion, judgment over another, but is submitting it to another. And we begin to be very cautious about our own perceptions about things because often our views, view of things can be distorted or darkened by our, our willfulness or, or some passion that we are struggling with. And so he's, he's saying then, it's right for us to say that humility arises out of obedience and from that humility, dispassion. And what they mean then is simply freedom from the passions. It's not that we don't have desire. If you remember, desire is essential for the spiritual life. This longing for God, who's the source of completeness, fullness for us. And so we have to have a desire for him, a desire for virtue, a desire for love. But dispassion is that freedom from those uh, uh, sins and tendencies towards sins that become habitual in us, deeply rooted. So obedience leads to humility, and humility eventually leads us to a freedom from the passions that guide and rule our life so often. And so in reading this, even though it's a little bit confusing, it shows us why the Father's elevated uh, obedience so much within the spiritual life. 
again, I think we often have the wrong view of obedience as sort of being under somebody else's control or as it's so often acted upon, you know, in this manipulating way or destroying a person's personality. It has nothing to do with that. It's to be conform, it's conforming oneself to Christ. And only the one who can guide a person in obedience should be one who's lived it perfectly himself or herself throughout, throughout many years in order to be able then to, to guide others through it. And so, so often, again, we've seen great damage by this distorted vision, vision of obedience. And even a distorted vision, I think, of the fathers and how they really saw obedience too. If, you know, if it's a superficial reading of the fathers, then what you're going to get is this distorted picture, you know, that they were just sort of these miserable creatures who stripped themselves of everything, who knew nothing of joy or peace in their life. And what we see is something just the opposite, the deepest joy, abiding peace, you know, an invincible peace and an invincible joy is what we see in those who've reached this level of dispassion. That's why we should desire it, that we can begin to experience something now of the peace of the kingdom itself. Any thoughts on that? I know that last one was a toughie. They're all tough, but... So that brings us to 8.30. Anyone ha have any follow-up comments, questions? Rachel, this reminds me of the rich young man who encountered our Lord himself and went away sad, not willing to give up his attachments, how he followed all the commandments and obedience. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories uh, because I think it's in Mark that we're told that the Lord loved him that he saw his desire and he saw his goodness, that he really did live a good life, a holy life. He followed all the commandments. And yet when love himself stood before him, offering him everything, he wasn't able to let go of what was lesser for the greater, for the fullness that he could find in Christ in Christ alone. Go sell all you have and then follow me. Christ was offering everything and he wasn't able to take hold of it. And so, yes, you know, it's a, a perfect example of it. Anthony, it makes sense since angels are under obedience and they are God in God's happy presence. That's right. Their, their perfect obedience, you know, means that they, you know, and I think this constant course of praise of God too arises out of that. You know, they participate in the, the joy, the peace of God himself. And I think it's for this reason that we hear the monks speak of the monastic life as the angelic life, that to, to become like angels, not in the sense that they set aside their humanity, but they become free from the passions that then distort our human dignity and our understanding of what it is to be a human being and what it is to love. And so they become, they become angels in the sense that they are no longer weighed down by their passions, but can love freely. 
and even begin to take on some of the qualities that we see within angels in the sense of their ability to perceive certain things. You often hear the word clairvoyance used in this translation, that the fathers often unimpeded by any sin or darkness of sin and having such purity of heart, they, that they could see the, the truth of the, the reality that was before them and or even how things were going to fall out, play out in a person's life. They could perceive how things were going to develop within the future, that they began to participate uh, something again in, you know, of the, 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 the mind and the life of Christ, that they could see divine things, or, uh, see things through his eyes. Anthony, you had your hand up. Do you have a follow-up or is that a Oh, there it is. Oh, that was you. I'm sorry. And here I thought they always were talking about not marrying. Okay, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, when we have a kind of superficial reading, whether it's of scripture or of the fathers, I think we can fall into this distorted notion, you know, of, of, of the things in the world that are good and that are paths to sanctity, sources of grace, and I think so often our understanding of that has been darkened because we, we have not allowed ourselves to be guided into a deeper truth or a deeper reading. Henry, we'll give you the last word. Okay, thank you, Father. I have both editions of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. Mm -hmm. uh, this one here. Right. Which you're familiar with and the, the uh, newer edition. That's right. Uh, in the older edition, the introduction is by Metropolitan Callistus Ware, a great right. Orthodox monk, who right. just passed into eternal memory this morning. That's right. That's right. So, so eternal rest grant unto him. Yeah. Memory eternal. You know, and you know, it's, it's 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 a great introduction. And if you have an old copy, just reread the the introduction. Yeah, so absolutely. I agree with that. It was the first I read. It's 70 some pages long, but it's beautiful. And he's, you know, in terms of knowledge of the Philoclea, the fathers of John Climacus, he is probably the most knowledgeable and has brought fruit to, in, to many people's life, both East and West. So. Amen. Amen. I marked the paragraph numbers in the old edition, by the way, so yeah, I can too. follow along. <laughs> yeah, I have both copies too. Uh, I did the same thing. I actually like the other translation too, from the, the Paulus one. It's very smooth. I like both, but they have both have their virtues. So why don't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.